Welcome to the Real Estate Entrepreneurs Podcast. Real people doing real deals in real estate and no fake gurus allowed. We bring you the best and the most real real estate investors in the space. They'll be showing you the good, the bad, and the ugly of real estate investing. Like, share, subscribe, get notified. It's the Real Estate Entrepreneurs Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today, we have a special guest that's actually not necessarily a real estate investor, but in today's, um, I guess, world and standard, I would call him more of a coach and a mentor and somebody that's gone through a lot of ups and downs in life. He's made it huge. Uh, He's got a great story. Uh, I've been following Mr. Dr. Valdez for about three or four years now. And I want to thank you so much for the opportunity, uh, Dr. Valdez, of interviewing you and uh, for accepting an invitation to our mastermind. Thanks, Rick. It's really been a pleasure for me. And uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I really look forward to speaking to those people. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be great. But let, let's get into your story. Who is Dr. Valdez? Where do you come from? So I come from Havana, Cuba. Immigrant young kid, like everyone else. Uh, my mother was a very, very religious mother. My father was a typical Catholic. You know, I'll take you to church and pick you up. Yeah. And, uh, but a man of tremendous integrity, tremendous principle, and very wealthy in Cuba. So my dad did not want to leave Cuba. My mother, who was actually born with a silver spoon because her father ended up becoming a general and ended up becoming someone very, very powerful in Cuba. And uh, she was just... You know, she was 4'11", and I said that if she had been 5'5", five, five, she would have been worse than Osama bin Laden because she was like a terrorist, man. But she was the type of woman that she said, no, I want my kids to grow up in a country where they can worship God freely. Well, <clears throat> the thing was that eventually we, we leave. She applied in 62. We left in 66. And, you know, in school, you, you go to school. I was 10 years old. And, you know, you get all the communist propaganda, right? You know, God doesn't exist, blah, 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 all of that. Then you come home, and your mother is like, no, God is God. God is real. You know, God is everything. But the interesting thing, well, the genius between, uh, of Fidel Castro, because, I mean, we don't want to give him any credit for anything, but you got to recognize the guy as a genius. What he did is, when kids became 12, like your son became 12, he would take him from your house in Texas and send him to live with someone in Omaha. And then someone from New York he sent to your house. Why? Because if that kid came home from school, and you told him anything contrary to what he's learning in school, you go to jail. Wow. So my mother wanted to get us out before that. So we came to Miami. The problem was that at the airport, she gets left behind. And when she gets left behind, she doesn't want, my dad doesn't want to leave. So my mother comes to me, grabs my hand, grabs my brother's hand, and my sister, my brother's nine, my sister's five. And she says, take your brother and sister to Miami. I'll see you one day. And I mean, my world shattered. I tell people that my life is, uh, rules around three cataclysmic moments. And, uh, I mean, I was in shock. First of all, I got woken up at 4.30 in the morning and told to put on my clothes only. No toys around. We're going. We had no idea we were leaving Cuba. You know, we're just, so, you know, here I am and looking out through the car and, and seeing my country that I wouldn't see for 50 years uh, again. But uh, 
my dad ended up getting on the uh, airplane at the last minute. But we got to Miami, and 11 of us went to live in a one-bedroom apartment. So it was a family of 11, or? We were four. Four. But we came to live with a family, okay. you know. Like, that was already established like, here. Like every immigrant family does. You know, the Cubans, the way we Yeah, where it. you can put six, you can put four more, five more, right? Well, <laughs> you know, you go, to, you go to Kmart that time, and you buy inflatable beds, and yeah. you throw them in the living room. You can do that today, too. Trust me. Yeah, and we did. And, and, and that's how we built Miami, because... So we came to live with a family. We didn't have to pay rent. We saved enough money so we could rent our own house. But then we would do that for another family. Got it. And that's how we all brought our... Pay you know, it forward, basically. Exactly, pay it forward. So, you know, to me, that was the first moment in so my how, life. how old were you when you left Cuba? I was 10. 10 years old. And I said to myself at that moment, I, I, I clearly can imagine, I said, uh, there's no God. My mother's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I'm 10 years old. I have to write down what time I'm going to take a pee. Because yeah. 11 of us had to go to the bathroom and everyone's got to go to work or school. Now you said it And took my you, mother behind. It took you 50 years to go back to Cuba. You went back to Cuba eventually. Went back to Cuba about five years ago. Oh, wow. For the first time. And you know, how was that? You know, I don't remember much because I was 10 when I left. But uh, what I did, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to go back to my neighborhood and see a guy named Pedro Chavez. Pedro Chavez was the Mickey Mantle of Cuba. You know, he got offered tons of money to come play for the United States, for the, in the United States, like a lot of the Cuban players at that time. Right. But he was a diehard communist. And I wanted to tell him that because of him, I fell in love with baseball. See, I was, my whole dream was to be a major league player. Right. And I was an unbelievable player, but the problem was I ended up having bad knees. Okay. But uh, I wanted to tell him because he would leave his house, which was about four or five houses from ours, and before he went to a park, he would come out and play with us for about half an hour. Wow. And then he'd load up some of the kids in the car and take us to the ballpark. And I never forget those moments, you know, and I wanted to be him. He was our Mickey Mantle. He was the greatest player in Cuban uh, history. So I, went, I wanted to go thank him. And I did. And I asked him. I said, looking back now, through everything that happened in the revolution, do you have any regrets? Now, having gone to the States and, you know, Play. made money and, and provide for your family, he's like, absolutely not. He said, I don't miss what I didn't have. Right. And what I did have was a family that I would have missed. And it really puts things into perspective, right? I mean, you're looking at, I understood that more, Rick, later on in life after I went through all of the journeys I've been through, that I've lost everything and, uh, and went to prison for all those years. I understood that. I would not have understood that when I came from Cuba. Because when I came from Cuba, my dream was defined the second day in the United States. My cousin, who had been there about a year and a half before us, came to visit us. And he had, i never forget this, he had a 1965 GTO convertible, candy apple red with white interior. Wow. I looked at that car, man, and I'm like, the day I get that car... I will be somebody important. And that was when my American dream, my version, and the version that a lot of people have today of the right. American dream, you know, make more money, have a lot of cars, have a lot of women, you'll be rich, you'll be happy. <laughs> Little they know, very few people get there. When they do, they realize shit ain't there, you know? They're, they're empty inside. So it was... Uh, Did you get to see your old house where you grew up when you went I, to Cuba? No, no, because I didn't even remember where it was, you know? So really my goal was, number one, I wanted to take my kids you know, to see where the country they came from. I mean, think about it. We're the only nation in history or race to be in exile for over 60 years. Yeah. 
And uh, I never went back when my mother was alive and my father because they never would have wanted it. But uh, I, I went and, uh, you know, and it was, I don't know if to say a weird feeling uh, because I didn't have a feeling one way or the other, only to see how great of a country it must have been when you see these amazing buildings all run down, right? Because no maintenance all these yeah. years. But still, they're standing, in standing there. there, you know. So, yeah, so, it, was, uh, it was interesting. So let's go back to uh, when, so you came to the U.S., you were 10 years old, and I guess you started going to school, right? Uh, how was that, that journey? That's, you met, and uh, you mentioned this uh, previous to the video when you and I were talking, that you met Sal McGluten um, when you were a very little kid, Yeah. Correct. So what, 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 how were you guys connected? Well, immediately after we came from Cuba, he, well, I mean, I used to call his mother Mama and his father Papo. I mean, they were like our family. And they had come to the United States before. And uh, Sal's dad and Sal's dad's brother married Sal's mom and Sal's mom's sisters. So two sisters and two brothers married. And they started a little bakery because they were bakers in Cuba. And very, very close with my parents, right? And... Uh, Actually, as a matter of fact, uh, the trimmings that they would bring us from the bakery was our main meal. Okay. Because since my mother got left behind, my dad took a job at Jackson Byron's, which is like J.C. Penney as a janitor for 85 cents an hour. Wow. Here's a 40-year-old man who had been a millionaire for 20 years, and yet never complained one day in his life. And uh, Gloria Banolo, so all we would have for breakfast would be two eggs, raw eggs, a glass of powdered milk, like the Vietnam milk that they gave us, yeah. that wouldn't mix. Till today, I can't drink milk because it was like drinking sand water. Wow. And then at night, rice and beans. And then Gloria and Manolo would bring us this grocery bag, you know, a couple times a week, or the cake trimmings. And that was like, I think that was the only carbs that we ended up having. But they were like our family, and we saw them a lot, you know, uh, constantly. And then, of course, I saw Sal. But Sal, it was only child. And even, you know, as, as we grew, and because we're about the same age, I think he's a, a few months older than me. Uh, then I, I remember at 16, clearly, he had this uh, brand new uh, Mustang. But you, you guys met when you just got here. Because, um, I mean, your parents and his parents, I guess, did they know each other in Cuba? Oh, yeah. We met, we met in Cuba. As a matter of fact, her mom uh, used to come, and, uh, or, and the father, and used to spend... Uh, uh, a long time of vacationing with us in uh, my mom's, um, my mother's father owned this unbelievable tobacco farm in uh, where he was from, Pinar del Rio, and uh, they would come and spend summer with us. So we knew them extremely well. I, so I knew Sal, but you know, honestly, at ten, I don't remember a lot of that. Hanging out with him. Yeah. yeah. No, we didn't hang out, uh, you know, because they lived separate from us. As a matter of fact, we were a lot better off uh, when. When his father left Cuba, he owed my father money. And my oh. father had to sign for giving the debt. Because wow. otherwise you couldn't leave Cuba if you owed anybody anything. Oh, wow. So, but they were very, very close. I mean, literally, until they died. I mean, they would visit each other, go have coffee at each other's house. They were like three friends. They would alternate which house they would go. But every day after dinner, while we lived in Miami, they, they saw each other. Wow. So, um you start growing up, you go to high school and all that, and then what's next? So I start growing up, and even at the age of 10, I, I, I say that probably like right after I sold that, that car, I created a vision for my life. Because 
we had no money, and, and, and immediately I said, there's no God, that's a bunch of crap, right. you know? But I had this father that had unbelievable integrity. My father, I mean, and my brother and I used to say, look at the broken record, because he would get us, literally, every three times a week. And he said, son, in life, you got no control whether you're rich or poor. And I'm like, oh shit, no kidding. I know, not too long ago, we were very rich. Right. Uh, whether you're dead or alive, whether you're sick or healthy. He said, there's only one thing in life you have control, and that's your word. Only you can break it. Don't ever forget that. Man, that was the most genius thing he ever taught me. And it's something I have taught my kids over and over, even though at that time, to me, it was like a broken record. Because those words is what allowed me to lay in the floor of a Panamanian jail being tortured to death. Wow. So, uh, you know, he was like, I, I remember... We had no lunch. So show you the kind of person he was. So we had no lunch and we had a friend. And this friend had lunch. And I asked him. His name was also George. I said, how do you have lunch? He said, well, my parents get food stamps. I'm like, what is that? He said, well, the government gives you this little thing and you go to the grocery store and you buy groceries. I'm like, wow, I need to tell my dad this because he definitely doesn't know about food stamps. So I get home and he comes home from work and says, hey, dad. You know, my friend George has lunch. And you know, my dad was that old mentality, you know, speak very few words. And uh, he said that he gets food stamps. You know about food stamps, Dad? And he's like, yes. I said, well, why don't we get food stamps? He said, son, that's for poor people. Man, I looked at him, Rick, I'm like, holy no, shit. And, and in his mind, he's not poor? I'll show you. I looked at him, I'm like, holy shit, we're not poor yet? We still got to climb the ladder to get to poverty? I said, Dad, we're not poor? He said, no, son. We just don't have money. And I'll never forget, he put his finger in my chest. I was 10 years old, weighed probably 80 pounds. And he said, wake up early and help feed your family. I woke up at 5.30 every day till today because I never forgot those words. And I did. And I delivered papers in the morning. And I came home and washed cars. And I cut grass on the weekends. And I helped feed my family. And it was tremendous pride. So at that moment, I had, a, I had a very, very clear vision. And the vision was, I'm going to be the best at whatever I do in life. I'm, and now my goal is to be the best student. Right? So, and then at the age of 17, so I'll skip the high school years. People can read the book. But at the age of 17, I get hired by the Federal Reserve Bank. I'm the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami. And... Uh, I'm working full-time for the Federal Reserve Bank, and I'm going to University of Miami full-time on full scholarship. At the same time, the bank had tuition reimbursement. So I would pay the tuition, I would build the bank, and, and I would the build a scholarship. <laughs> and, and that's how I made money, because half of my paycheck had to go to my parents. Right. You know, because we're a family. Yeah, you were supporting your house, uh, house as well. Exactly, and that's how they looked at it. And we didn't do it. Because we had to. We felt pride in, in helping to provide for our family. Yeah, it was something that was instilled in your family. Yeah, you know, and, like. and, and, it's, and it's in a lot of the Hispanic culture, you know? So uh, I, I went like that, and like I was telling you uh, last night, I mean, I can tell what I did for four years, every second of my life. Because, I mean, I worked at 3.30 at the bank, I left the bank, I got home, my mother would have dinner for me. I would have, I, I'd take dinner, I'd run to the uh, Federal Reserve Bank, I mean to the University of Miami, 5.30 class till 10.15, run home, study till 2 o'clock in the morning, go to bed, 
Wake up at six o'clock, be at the bank by seven o'clock. I did that for four years, every day oh. of my life. And, uh, but my vision was that I w- I'm going to study, I'm going to graduate early, I'm going to graduate top of my class as I was, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a couple years to work and save money to go to law school because I'm going to graduate from law school at 25 and I'm going to be a millionaire by 30. And nothing's going to deviate from that. So there were no drugs, I never did drugs, I never uh, took alcohol, all the alcohol I drank by the age of 20, fit in a teacup. Wow. And never smoked a cigarette, never did anything. Nothing wrong. I was like, I was the ultimate you, nerd. You were on your path. I right? was on my path. And, uh, Laser you know, focused. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and then you cross a line, you know. So I had an accounting professor ask me to come work for him. He said, my first accounting professor, and he's like, look, if you do my uh, Spanish client, I'll give you secretary office. All this thing that I couldn't afford. And to me, it was like, wow, man, maybe that's the first sign there is a guy. So, because I wanted to be on my own, right? My mother was, listen, you're never going to get nowhere working for somebody. You know, I don't believe in that theory anymore. <laughs> I still, people think that being an entrepreneur is the greatest thing in the world. And it is, but it's, it's not for, for everybody. Not everybody yeah. It's not for everybody, you know? So, uh, I left the bank. And, uh, you know, and, and it was sad because I had a hell of a future at the bank. You know, I've been there already for four years uh, as a young man. And uh, so <clears throat> I went to work for, for him, and the first client that he had me do was a little grocery store in Miami, Northwest 7th Street and about 38th, a little strip, you know, them strip malls in Miami. And uh, they were going to pay me $1,000 a month to go there four mornings on Mondays, every Monday of the month for, till, from 9 to 12. And I was like, man, I hit the lotto. Well, I hit a lot. I'm like, I'm making the big money now, $1,000, man. And, uh, but I go there the first day, and I remember that I went to, they had a little office in the back for me, and I see this shopping bag. I mean, this, you know, paper uh, grocery bag. And it was like about $125,000. I never seen so much money ever. And uh, cash, cash. And I'm like, I had no clue. I'm like, well, maybe they've never deposited money in the bank or. You know, maybe it's selling more than groceries and nothing. Just wrote it down, took it to the bank and deposited it. Barnett Bank, like nothing, you know. Next week I come and there was 80, 90 grand. And I'm like, damn, something's got to be wrong because, I mean, it's a lot of money. Still, so far from ever thinking anything's wrong, just that I'm naive. I don't comprehend this world, right? You know, the third week. When I go there and there's another hundred some thousand, I'm like, Anna, oh, no. I gotta find out what's going on. So I remember like today, I called, I called the guy, his name was Alberto. I said, Alberto, let me give you a little accounting lesson. You, and I took a can of Campbell's soup that had written a V on the top to see if it ever sold. And by then, the V was clear, full of dust, right? And so I said, You see this can? Let's say we buy it for a dollar and we sell it for $3. That's $2 worth of profit. And $3 worth of sales. We got 300 and some odd thousand worth of sales. That means we should have spent at least 100,000 inventory. But we spent less than a grand. I don't understand. I mean, with the straightest face in the world, not even missing a beat. Oh, he cracks his mind and says, no, man, we're drug dealers. <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah, we don't sell soup I'm here. Like, you what know? the fuck? <laughs> I mean, you know what? 
Yeah, we and, don't uh, sell soupy. Or yeah. We sell drugs, dude. And I'm like, yeah, we sell cocaine. And I'm like, what? What, what year is this? This is 1976. Wow. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no. He, and then he jumps the conversation. You know how to open foreign bank accounts, don't you? You work for the government. And I did, because I was involved in an audit at the Federal Reserve Bank. And we knew where the guy opened the foreign bank in the Caymans. And it was about 800 bucks. And he's like, uh, do you know how to do it? I said, yeah. And he said, how much? And I just threw a number out of that. 10,000, I said. He's like, can you open three for us? And I was trying to do everything I could for not to falling not into it. shock. Right. No, forget about it. Hell yeah, I was going to do it. I'm like, listen, this is what happens in life. We have ways of convincing ourselves when we do something wrong that it's okay. Yes. Because it serves a greater purpose, right? Right. Number one, I'm only going to do it one time. Right. I'm never going to do it again. I'm going to only make this amount of money, never do it again. 30000 You know, like, uh, I'm only going to smoke a joint one time. <laughs> right. Or I'm only going to hit, uh, get a hit of cocaine one time, and then before you know it, you're snorting a kilo. Right. You know, just like that, right? I'm not saying that's what happens to everybody, but I'm saying that's how it happens in life. Right. You cross a line thinking that, oh, it's okay to do one. Because at that time. And you justify it. Oh, numerous ways. Yeah. In very creative ways. And, I mean, for me, it was like, hey, I'm an accountant. I was trained to count money. Right. There's no law, money laundering laws or anything like that. Back then, there was nothing. Nothing. And nobody even talked about cocaine back then. If you see an interview I have on YouTube with the first DEA agent that was undercover in my case in 79, he says in the interview, he says, we never even knew there was a cocaine problem in America until we found out about you. Wow. He says, we never had no doubt. To us, the problem was marijuana and heroin. So I'm like, okay. So I opened that foreign bank account. I'm going to fast forward. And uh, I make 20 some thousand bucks, man. And I'm like, I just hit the lotto. I'm a billionaire now, right? Yeah, you, you just made two years worth of salary. And, uh, and the second cataclysmic moment happens. I start joining the world of those I wanted to be like, right? I, my circle of influence changed. No longer I'm hanging out with my dead broke Federal Reserve Bank employees. Right. Every once in a while going to the wrestling matches in Miami. Now I'm hanging around with the rich and famous. And I go to a party and I see this judge that used to give people a lot of time. And he was snorting cocaine, doing some pretty nasty things. Right. And I looked at that and I'm like, shit, there's no morals, there's no God, and there's definitely no morals. So... At this time, they were harassing me. Uh, I fast-forwarded a lot because from opening those foreign bank accounts, Albro introduces me to their boss, who ends up becoming my godfather, who was the guy that ended up finding, uh, creating the organization that later on became called the Medellin Cartel, even though there was never no Medellin Cartel. So let's just right. fluff them out right now. People thought it was crazy when I said that until one of your shows said it. Hey, there was no Medellin Cartel, and, uh, and it's true. But... Anyway, he, uh, he introduced him to me, and the guy's like, hey, I want to open a banana company, and uh, I want to register it here, and, and we got big banana fields in Colombia, and we want to buy a ship and, and refrigerate it. And I was convinced that we weren't going to be in the banana business. Right. I mean, I had no doubt, man. And they're like, you want to be the president? I said, oh, hell yeah. Well, they were going to send some bananas, but they had a little bit on the side of oh, something man. else, right? The yeah. other way around. They were going right. to send a high cocaine with a little banana on the side. Yeah. Somebody has to cover up all the cocaine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was like, it was like crazy. And I'm like, 
They're like, you can become the president. I said, well, if I'm the president, I want equal partnership. There were four other guys. Him, him and three other guys, four of them and me became five, became that first group that was responsible for 95% of all the cocaine that came into America wow. during that time. And uh, according to the federal government, so let me put that disclaimer. Right, right, right. I've never claimed I brought anything in. Right. But anything. So uh, he and his three other partners uh, said, uh, you want to be, and, and, and to show you how innocent I was, if I had any idea what the hell that was, I sure as hell wasn't going to be the president. Right. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to be the one that owned the ship. I wasn't going to be, you know, I'm like, man, no wonder they were so happy to make me the president, right? I said, you got to put out my side of the uh, capital, and I want $6,000 a month, which is like saying now, I don't know, $40,000 a month, right. right? And they agreed so easily. Well, I went to California, and in California, where we were bought a, a, a big ship, and we were converting it to refrigeration. And one thing led to the other. I, I met a guy there that was doing the refrigeration. So I used to play baseball. He had a softball team. He and I became very close friends. And he kept telling me, hey, that boat is to bring in cocaine. I'm like, oh, bullshit, man. That ain't. No, that's a banana boat. And I was serious. And I was getting mad at this dude, man. Come on, man. You can tell us. Wow. And I'm like, dude, it's not. Anyway, long story, they kept asking me uh, in Colombia, they kept asking me, hey, we want you to handle all our operations in the U.S. I'm 20 years old. I'm about to turn 21. And I was like, no, you don't. Because by this time, going back, I created the most sophisticated money laundering operation of its time. Because now, I, not only was I opening foreign bank accounts in Grand Cayman, I was opening foreign bank accounts in Tortola, in Switzerland, in Andorra, all over. I was meeting uh, ministers of finance all over the place. I was paying bank presents to open the bank after hours so that I can deposit three, four million bucks at a time. Wow. So I tell them, hey, look, you don't want to mix. I handle all your money. You don't want to mix your money, man, with your man. Because I felt okay with the money, right? I felt like I'm not doing anything wrong. If they stop me or catch me, like, hey, I have no idea where it comes from, and it's not illegal what I'm doing. But, you know, one thing led to the other, and within six months, I became U.S. head of all operations. In 1977, we started bringing in 700 kilos a month. When you see cocaine cowboys in Netflix and you see that big video canary, but yeah. they arrested 130 people, right? They were all selling grams and ounces. I mean, Sal and Willie were selling grams at a disco. High school dropouts selling grams at a disco for two years. My name doesn't even show up. And yet, for two years, I'm bringing in six to 800 kilos. Wow. On a bad month. Sometimes twice. And, you know, we're doing between 50 to $80 million a month in 1977 money. Which is hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. a day. And, and, and nearly in one year, we closely, we came very, very close, if not, to having done a billion dollars. Wow. But no one knew who we were. Why? Because we were business people. See? We were not flashy. You know, I wore a suit, I wore a suit three times a day since the age of 20. And I wear one in the morning, I go to lunch, take a shower, change for the afternoon, and at dinner, change, and, and wear another suit to go out to dinner. I did that every day of my life. I was at my office at 6.30 in the morning. All the years I did in prison, till today, the government will tell you, they don't have a single wiretap on me. And they don't have a single compromising picture. All they have 
It's a businessman going to his office every day at 6.30 in the morning and leaving at 6 o'clock at night. And we had enormous companies. We had airlines. We had coal mines. We had emerald mines. We had construction companies. I mean, besides the money that we're doing every month, what we were doing, legitimate, was millions in the 70s. So, I mean, I started making, by mid-77, when I took control, I was making a million on a bad month, $2 million on $3 million on a good month. You know, and I had everything you can imagine. Wow. I had the Jets. Uh, I dated the supermodels. There wasn't even called those supermodels at that time. Uh, you know, I had mansions everywhere I went. And I had anything a human being would ever want. Yet I couldn't understand why I was so miserable. You were miserable inside. So, um, so let's talk about, you know, you become part of the, the, what they call the Medellin cartel. And, and now you're a partner. How is that world? Like, how do these guys behave? What do they, how do they speak? How do they, I, don't, I never met them uh, other than you and, and a lot of small time, you know, drug dealers in, in Miami and Venezuela uh, also. But this is a whole different, because this is like the, the, this is the top of the elite of the cocaine world, right? How do these people think and, and, and feel about family, kids? Because uh, uh, there were a lot of deaths that came in the 80s because of the cocaine uh, cowboys, uh, right. you know, killing. But see, that, that's the whole key when you said the 80s. When I joined in 1977, these people were the most outstanding, religious, family people you ever met. We used to joke that we were the Kennedys of the 20th century. My godfather told me that they need to carry a gun to deal with someone you have no business dealing with that person. So these people were very, very family, very, very, it was a business. You know, one, one scene that did not come out in Cocaine Cowboys was when the producer asked me, listen, Pablo, El Chapo, Sal, Willie, you, they all had as many false passports as you did, right? Sure. They had as many airplanes as you did. I said, probably more. They had as much money as you did. I said, probably more. Why was it so easy for you to quit and not for them? And you know, Rick, no one had ever asked me that question in 20 years. And I answered it like this. I said, because I was never considered, I never considered myself a drug lord. They did. See, for me, it was a business. And when I realized that business, when I come out of jail and I go back in there and I realized that business now is killing kids, they're, they're killing each other in the mall. See, remember, when I started, Pablo Escobar didn't even exist. Griselda Blanco, no, these people existed. When this business, all of a sudden I realized what it was, I walked away. Why? Because it's not, the, not what I signed up for anymore. It didn't serve uh, you anymore. No, uh, and it was easy for me to leave. Why they couldn't leave? Same reason you see athletes that can't quit in their prime, right? They, they ended up, Joe Montana, right? Why not quit at the end of your career with the 49ers? Why go to Tampa, where it was that he went, and end up in the bench. Because that's the only identity that they have. You know, I used to be, uh, uh, help be the chaplain to Spanish players for the Braves, and, and I take Julio Franco, one of my closest friends. A lot of the athletes were my friends. He would rather die than quit being a baseball player. That's why when he left, played till he was 50, went and played in Korea, till he was almost 60 years old. Because that's the only identity. And for those guys, 
That's the only identity. Like I said in the show, they did put this part. I said, take Sal and put him in, in Omaha. Who's Sal in Omaha? Why, why when he's running, he's at the Ritz Carlton in Palm Beach? Makes no sense. And he's in Miami Beach. And he's got a bad wig. Damn it, you can afford to buy a better wig. You know? Because when I was in prison, you know, my mind was in psychiatry. And I wrote a, I wrote a book I called uh, The Agony of Victory and the Thrill of Defeat. I believe, and you know it's proven that, I don't know, six, seven bank robbers are caught at the, at the robbery site within the first hour. They come back. And I said to myself, the big payoff for these people is getting caught in that publicity. And, and like you see, the kings of Miami. Well, dude, for 20 years, and if there had never been no Google, the big snitch, I never would have told my story ever. That's why <clears throat> I look at Narcos. I look at all those shows and I laugh. Why? Well, first of all, who are they getting their information from? The media? I mean, who's talking? Most of us are dead. Yes. You know? Who's telling them how it all began? How come every show starts with Pablo Escobar? That's 1981. Cocaine did not come into America in 1981 or 82 or 80. So can we say that there are two faces to the whole cocaine elite, um, to, the, to the top you know, people that were in charge of the cocaine business. Because for what I'm understanding right now from you is in the 70s when you and your godfather and all these other people were, you know, bringing 700 kilos, you guys were business people, just have to be involved in the cocaine business. But then we get all these other people that come afterwards, the Pablos, the Griseldas, and, 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 and people that were doing very bad things, you know, killing people everywhere. And those are the ones that are notorious, that everybody knows about. Exactly. But nobody knows about the no. ones that were before that actually handled it as a business. Because we purposely never told our story. I purposely never told my story. <clears throat> I wrote my book uh, in 1998. I got approached by every major Hollywood studio. And I came close to signing a contract with uh, James Brubaker, who had been president of Universal. And I never did because... At the end of the day, I'm ashamed of that life. You know, I tell it because I say to show tremendous forgiveness and redemption, you guys show tremendous sin. And to be real to a story, I, I can't whitewash it. I wish I could, but, you know, my fear in doing Cocaine Cowboys was that everybody was going to do what, what people are doing. But I have tremendous respect for the producers because they were honorable to tell me, to take, they, they gave me my word and they were honorable that they were going to show the other side. Because what's my fear? Two fears. Number one, everybody said, wow, you know, I'm 13 year old kid in high school, I'm going to drop out and I'll become Sal Willie. Number one. Number two, a mother looks at that and says, you know, because of you son of a bitches, I bury my child. Yeah. And a kid says, you know, I grew up without a father. You know, and a wife said, you know, my husband was killed. There was a lot of bad that happened yes. afterwards. And the problem is that we glorify that life. And until we could tell, that's why if you hear Billy uh, in a podcast, you can't make this up for Netflix, you hear him say, it took us three years to get George. I told him no over and over and over again. I said, number one, you're going to tell the same story that's already been told. You take Pablo Escobar, you take El pa uh, uh, you know, uh, Chapo, you take Gacha, you take uh, Sal, Willie, 
It's the same damn story with a different character, same script. Poor kid, got out of school, joins a life of crime, becomes rich, powerful, lives a lavish lifestyle, kills, murders, dies, or spends the rest of his life in jail. Listen, Rick. Change whatever name. Yeah, they, they only have two scripts. That's it, buddy. The guy that goes to jail and the guys that, 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 that die. That's it. The, the ending. Everything up to that ending, the same script. Why would I want to tell that story? That's not my story. And, and, what, and what the hell does that story help anybody? So what I am proud of Billy and, and Alfred and David, the partners on Reckon Tour, is that they told the good and the ugly. You know? And people don't tell the ugly. You know? And, and, that's, that's, and I don't say the good because it was nothing good, but the glamorous. Let's yeah, put it, the glamorous. What I mean. Like when Willie right. and Sal were riding boats and winning. And, 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 we, <clears throat> and we decide that these people are so smart. Are they? Are they really smart? You're a freaking fugitive and you're giving an ESPN interview. How freaking smart you are. No, that's not that smart. How smart when you got straight A's in high school and drop out? You know? I, I, another thing I couldn't understand was... How come they never left the country and go somewhere else and live a peaceful life? Because they couldn't. Because of what I just said. That was their identity. You take them, forget about leaving the country. Go out to some farm in Omaha. <laughs> Who are they there? They're lost. They need to be so that what happens, like people are saying, oh, everyone in Miami knew those muchachos. Yeah. And, and they say that as something good. Really? I'd rather they say no one knew George Valdez. Yeah. I feel proud of that because that they know him, you know, that's, look, I love the guy still, okay? Uh, we, had, we were so close that it was very, very difficult not to. And like I said on the story, this story could have had a different ending. It could have so easily, so easily. And I begged Sal right there at my mother's house. I begged him, dude, it doesn't have to end this way. Fucked him once, I'm gonna fuck him again. I said, No, you're not. Well, you just want a little battle, buddy. <laughs> I didn't even know they had bribed the jurors up to that time. Forever, I would have gone to my grave believing it was impossible that, they had, that Sal had killed anybody, ordered anybody's death. Yeah, well, but there had, was a lot of. He had a list. There was a lot of compelling, there was a lot of evidence. Yeah, but they turned into someone else. Sad. You know, the they mo did. The money and the power. Turn them into somebody else. Sure. Power corrupts and absolute yeah. power corrupts absolutely. So let's go back to your story. Um, you mentioned that you crashed in, in Panama. How was that? Well, <clears throat> in 1979, as a matter of fact, it was Sal. He comes up to me. He's working for me now. He'd been working for me already for six months since I gave him a break. And he said, Hey, there's a guy, a captain of Bolivian Air Force, who's tied in to Roberto Suarez. And they want to work with you. They want to come straight. At that time, we were paying 18000 a kilo in Colombia. But very inconsistent, right? I mean, you buy 100 kilos and it could be 10 different cocaine. Right. So when they come to me, he says, and they have a heck of an offer. They're willing to sell to you for 10000 and they're willing to give you one on credit. For each one you buy, they'll give you one on credit. So what do you say? So I asked Manuel, the head of of our family, and uh, he's like, no, we don't need to. We're making so much money. He says, them people are their animals. He said, I had a nephew that went to make a deal, and after paying a ton of money, they sent them to me in a box cut up in pieces. Wow. 
I said, why do you want to do that for, George? But you know, it's, there's been a lot of years of reflection, right? You can, right. Monday, Monday morning quarterback is really, you win every game. I looked back, and I kept asking myself that. Why? We had everything so easy here. Our buyers were business people. They were celebrities. They were movie stars. They were, you know, they, they were not violent people, man. They were just hippies from the 70s. Uh, why, instead of about $2 million, now I'm going to make six? Is it really going to make a difference in my lifestyle? Shit, I just, my maid just asked me to clean, to help her move the sofa I had in my office at home. And I moved it because she wanted to clean behind it. And there was a bag there with with $700,000. Wow. And I don't even remember who left it there. Wow. You know? So why? You know? And uh, it is that hung, it is that emptiness in you. Ego. You know, is that I'll shit on my wife one time, but then that's not enough. And I'll buy this car, but then I need another car, and I can only drive one car at a time. And I got this house, and, but I need a vacation house, and I need another house, but you can only sleep in one, and they, your family is seriously in debt. Because you're trying to find meaning and purpose for your life in the material world. In the wrong place. Right? Yeah. And for me, it was power. I mean, it's like, I got unbelievable amounts of power. I'm 22 years old. And, uh, and we went and worked out a deal with the government. And I took $1,300,000 cash. And then what happened is, so we set up, ready to go pick up the load. And I hired these pilots which my attorney, which I didn't know was the reason I ended up getting busted because he was, he was telling on me. He already got busted bribing a, a judge, and uh, Mel Kessler, and he was telling on me. So anyways, they, uh, we go there, and I went to uh, Colombia to show them the strip, the pilots. And from there, they would go on to Bolivia, bring it in, and, I would, and then I was headed to have a meeting with Somoza in Nicaragua, and then I was headed to Europe because I just bought this 450 uh, Mercedes convertible in Germany. I was going to spend a month with uh, this woman. So I go and I show the strip. And when we, I call Sal to tell him that the airplane is on its way or is getting ready to leave the next day, he's like, we have a problem. And he's like, I'm like, what is the problem? He says, they fucked you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, all they got here is the 130 kilos that you paid for. They don't have the 130 that they were from. Oh, yeah which thank God, because we were lost it. And I was so angry. Now think about it. I'm 22 years old. I get on an airplane. I get on the airplane in Colombia with the guys. I'm like, I'm headed to Bolivia with you. I'm going to straighten this shit out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into a fight with a general that's overthrown five governments, wow. five presidents. That's how crazy you become. You think you're invisible and scared of nothing or nobody. I'm going to tell them that if they fuck me again, I'm going to have them all wiped out. I never wiped out anybody in my life. You know, I would kill the frog, man. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that's the mindset you get into. The power consumes you. And, uh, and I head out there. So they, they make peace and they're like, look, send the airplane next week and we'll give it all to you in credit. So we head back. Now, this is 1978, 79, uh, March of 79. Remember, there's no, it's not like now where you can have 20 flights from every Latin American country. Right. Back then, you have one flight going somewhere. I got to be in Nicaragua to meet with Somoza because we have a container that, of, of cocaine that he's going to put on a refrigerated cargo of uh, seafood and send to, to the United States. So I got I to gotta get there. So I get on the airplane. When my godfather in Colombia saw me, he almost had a heart attack. Are you freaking crazy? 
Here you are, the guy that handles everything for us. What the hell are you doing on that airplane? Manuel, don't worry, nothing's ever going to happen to me. And man, we had a big blowout. I, have, I love the man to death. He's 93 years old today. Wow. The most amazing person I ever met. And uh, I said, look, I'm going, I'll get off the airplane in Nicaragua. But I got to get, I, I need to be there. I have this meeting tomorrow. There's no other way I can get there. And then Somoza is going to send me on a jet uh, to Dominican Republic where I was going to pick up the girl and go to Europe. And uh, so, you know, he came to peace. So we got on the airplane and both alternated. One alternator failed and we're like, do we turn back? Because you got fuel. You got this bladders inside to get you the distance. Right. And I'm like, no, what the hell are we going to do in the jungles of Colombia? So let's go. We're in Nicaragua, Somoza will be able to get us the, the uh, spare alternate before we head to the U.S. And then we're more protected in Nicaragua. You know, we're, I mean, we got the government waiting for us. Here we're in the middle of a, of a jungle in Colombia. Right. So I get on the plane and halfway through, the other alternate goes out. And then we can get the fuel out. And at 3,000 feet, both engines shut down. And we crash land. You saw the pictures of my book. I mean, we landed like this. We should have all been dead. Wow. So, you know, many things I could have done at that time, but I felt like I was God. I was very comfortable buying my way. We had just paid a million dollars to elect the president of Costa Rica. You know, no problem. Attorney General comes. I'm like, don't waste my time. How much money to buy the cocaine and how much money to get out? He's like, well... The cocaine, Noriega already sold. <laughs> I mean, shoot, man, that was 12 hours ago. And I says, but see, he was working for both sides. He was working for the DA and for the cartel. And uh, he says, 250000 to you to get out. I said, okay, here's a number. Say these words, and you have the money here the following day. And that's how it happened. I went back, and I told the pilots and, and, and their boss, Harold, stand-up guy. And uh, I said, look, they're going to take us to Panama City. They're going to beat us up. Make it look good for the DEA. Hang in there. Stick to our story. We're taking arms to a Sandinista. We didn't know it was cocaine. And, uh, and they're going to let us go. Because we crash landed in Panama. It wasn't like we landed in Panama on purpose, right? So that was the, the Attorney General. Well, they took us to this room, and it was about 30 feet long, about 8 feet wide. And they put four chairs up against the wall, just like we are now. And they bring this kid, 95 pounds soaking wet. 19, 20 years old, naked, handcuffed to his feet and his arm. They threw him on the floor. I thought they killed him when they threw him. And then these two guys came and one stuck of a broomstick that much inside of his ass. Wow. And blood splattered all over the place. Literally, almost to us. And uh, the pilots broke weak. And now this are six foot four rednecks from Georgia. Right. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to tell. Start screaming it. I mean, like two girls, and we just know, holy cow. But we were hoping that they would just tell that, yeah, I'm a drug dealer, that we know. No, they go on and say that I bribed the attorney general. Wow. So the only guy that could get me out now is running for his life. Right. And they threw us in a dungeon. They tortured us for 20-some-odd days, no food, nothing, uh, literally to a point where I bled for five years every time I took a piss. Wow. So. So, but you get to see Noriega there after the years torture, later. right? Years later. No, but in, in, oh, yeah. In, in, well, what happened, and that's how we ended up getting out, because my fear was I was going to lose my mind there. Like another young man across from us that kept all day long licking the bars. 
And I'd rather that they would kill me. And me and my partner that were in there together, we decided, hey, let's just force them to kill us. And we get this shit over with. Because they're never going to stop. And we're, right. not gonna, we're never going to talk. Right. And uh, so when they came the last time, I told the guy, I said, tell Noriega that he needs to kill us. Because if he doesn't kill him and I get out of here, I'm going to have his wife and kids and daughters raped right in front of him. And then we're going to kill them all. And he knows we got the power to do that. I never killed anyone in my life, man. But I'm yeah. sure. Well, now you're desperate. Hey, right? I'm so. sure that this is going to get the job done, right? Right. And, uh, and sure enough, man, within hours, literally hours, he shows up. But somebody shows up laughing. You know, and he's like, why are you threatening me? I didn't tell on you. And then he says, and you just paid the wrong man. And I knew right there he wanted money. Yeah. I said, how much? He said, 250. <laughs> I'm like, I paid 250 for four, not just two. Is that, is that the going price here? So the same, same thing, give him the number, say, hey, call this number. The money will be here. And uh, three days later, he came and says, Batham, uh, I mean, they took us naked in this room with a fire hose. I don't know what I ever heard more in my life. The uh, electricity they put to our balls or that fire hose. Wow. Because we just had blood all over our bodies. And uh, the guys took us to the airport. And we're going to go to Costa Rica. And uh, Interpol came. The guy, the guy set us up. Not only did he, yeah, he released it, but he called Interpol. And Interpol came, threw us inside an airplane to Miami. Got to Miami, went in front of a judge. And I got charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America. I was 23 years old. I had just turned 23 and given the highest bond ever in the history of America. Wow. The government asked for $7 million, and I ended up, they were generous enough to give, lower it to $2 million. A murderer at that time would get a $50,000 bond. This is 1979. Wow. And I had the best, you see all those, the attorneys, except for Roy Black, the South hat, they were all my attorneys. I gave them permission to, uh, to defend uh, South, and I mean, I spent a million dollars to attorney. They couldn't indict me in Miami, they could not indict me in the middle district, in the southern district of Florida, middle and northern district. And then they took me to uh, Macon, Georgia, which I'd never been in my life, where the guy that I hired to bring the pilots had a case pending for two years. And he had faked his death and left. And they said, oh, this is the guy that stole George the drug. So we knew that we were going to win. I mean, a closing argument was, yeah, my client's a drug dealer. He's the biggest drug dealer in the world. But he has a constitutional right to be tried in the district where he committed his offense. It's called venue. They didn't give a shit. We appealed it to Supreme Court. I mean, the, the Court of Appeals, Supreme Court. And I, I saw it went off to prison for 15 years, the biggest sentence they could give you at that time. And uh, served five years. I had a blast in prison. You know, I literally controlled all the prisons I went to. You know, I, people said, oh, you made a lot of money because you were selling, selling drugs. I said, she was told that to the thousands of people that were with me in prison. We're all dead broke. And uh, got out and went back to the same thing. And it's sad because I didn't have to, nor, nor it was my plan to go back. See, I went back to collect my money that Sal and Willie owed me from me handing them the entire operation. So let's talk about that. Well, I want to talk about two things. Number one... The time that you ran in, into Noriega, was it the first time in prison or the second, second time? Second time. It was the second time around. So you go to jail, they give you 15 years, you end up serving five. But this is the time when you now hand over the cartel to, 
I handed it over to them when I went to jail. So what happened is when I gave them the first chance, you know, uh, you saw in Cocaine Cowboy, Sal was always telling my father, hey, I want to see George, I want to see George, time to give me a break. He was selling grams at this right. right? And, uh, you know, I didn't want get, to get them involved, number one, because their father was my parents' best friend. Right. That's number one. And number two, because I didn't want no one in Miami to know what we are doing. He figured it out, right? Because we're close. And my dad is going, oh, yeah, George is traveling all over the world, and he's become a millionaire. And he's like, he was like, man, he's he got to be doing yeah, something. He's not selling bananas. He got to be doing something, and I want part of that. Actually, I would say that that's probably the only smart thing Sal ever figured out in his life. Wow. And uh, so anyway, uh, my fear, when I finally gave him a meeting was because my fear was he was going to tell my parents, who really did not think that I was a drug dealer, right? And uh, so I gave him a meeting. And I said, look, <clears throat> I have half an hour. Come on. We had lost contact because he drops out of high school. I go work for the Federal Reserve Bank. I'm working 40 hours a day and going to school at night. I, I would see him every once in a while at University of Miami because he would go pick up a girlfriend that he had, you know, that was in my same accounting class. So I would see him there. But we had lost that, you know, real, real closing that we had way, way before. So I said, uh, I said, Sal, how much money do you have? And he's like, I think we can put together $15,000, $20,000. I peed in my pants. I'm like, dude, a kilo in my wholesale would be 58, 70 in California. You don't have enough to buy a kilo. We don't sell ounces. And I said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Right now we're all committed, but I'll try to figure out how I can get, help you out. And he went away and he was fine. <clears throat> Then we had a load come in, and we had 30 kilos that belonged to this one person we were supposed to deliver. Something that I kept telling my godfather was what was going to get us busted. He was such a good man. I don't know if we want to say that's a good man, but every time that we bring a load of 800, he always had these little guys that he would bring 10, 15, 20 kilos for, you know. And we delivered, charged him the freight, 7,000. It was costing us three grand, and, uh, and they would go out and do the little thing. So all of a sudden, we're supposed to deliver 30 kilos, and when we make the phone call, we had codes, and the guy that answered the phone is an agent, because he's like, yeah, how much, how much are you bringing me, and who's sending it? And we're like, is Pepe there? Well, there's no Pepe. You called uh, Jose's house. No, no, I'm sorry, we're, we're looking for Pepe. Oh, so he thought we dialed the wrong number. So I called the guy in Colombia. I said, listen, those 30 kilos, I'm going to charge you the $210,000 for the freight, and I'm going to take... At, at Colombian price, which at that time he was paying 20000 in Colombia. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep seven kilos, and I'm going to take the other 23, and I'm going to drop them off at the International Mall. And you figure out how to get that shit. You almost got us busted. Oh, doctor, please do me a favor, do me a favor, blah. And my godfather calls, and I'm like, look, the best I can do is give you the $20,000 per kilo in Colombia and not charge you the freight. I'll give you the 600000 in Colombia, and don't call me again. Can you do that, please? Yeah. Well, I just bought, you know, 30 kilos, $20,000, right. and three freight, 23. I'm going to sell them in, in, in uh, California for $40,000 a kilo, at $70,000 a kilo. So, <clears throat> but I called Sal, and I'm like, shit, let me just see what these guys can do. Help him out. And when I came, and I said, you want, you want to get started? He said, yeah. I said, here's 30 kilos. He, like, freaked out. He said, no, I can't do that. That's too much. We've never done anything like that. And uh, Willie, his partner, is like, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> Cocky. I mean, he was, <clears throat> you know, Willie 
was a really nice guy. Everybody said he's not too smart, and I said he wasn't too smart. I really honestly had minute dealings with him. Uh, because in reality, there was three partners. There was another guy the that never, they screwed oh. quickly out of their operation when they started to get big, which was Romero. And he was the guy that, that we used to give all the cocaine to. He's the guy that sold it. He's the guy that collected it, stashed it. And the minute they got a chance to screw him because he was one-third partner and hire someone, they did. And I really, I didn't find out until years later in prison. And I really regretted that because that's not how we are. And then it's always in the back of your mind. If they screw their partner, they're going to screw you. Yeah. You know, like I used to tell my friends, hey, if you're cheating with a woman that's married and she's telling you how much she loves you and she's cheating on her husband, she's going to cheat on you too. Yeah. You know? And uh, anyway, so we give it to him. I head out to Europe. And I come back, and they have my money. And I'm like, I started giving them every month 10, 15, 20 kilos. And, uh, and Sal and I became very close again, you know. And then in 1979, when we get arrested in Panama and all that, and I mean, to his credit, he went to Panama uh, to take the money himself when, I, uh, when they were going to pay Don So he's, he's the one that went to bail you out, basically. Well, my brother, my brother was a the main person, ended up getting arrested and everything. <clears throat> but Sal went. Long story. Uh, so I get arrested. I'm in Miami. I'm still handling all the operations because I have attorney, attorneys bringing in, like, like they talk about whether you bring in as an uh, uh, you know, investigator, bringing in all my people as investigators. So I'm getting up all the order. But when I get to, when they're going to transfer me to Macon, Georgia, and I'm like, there's nothing I can do. I needed someone to keep the operation going. So I handed it over to Sal. Until I got out, which I got out in nine months on bail because the government could still couldn't go to trial. So I kept, again, going. Then I thought for sure that we were going to win the trial. And then when we got convicted, the, the, the judge still left me out on parole. And uh, I had a month for sentencing. And then we, he told my attorney that he was going to remand me to prison and not... I think they were hoping that I would jump bail. Because that's how bad of a case they thought they had. Right. They offered me a two-year plea. I already had to serve the time. Well, you know? And uh, at that time, I just knew that, that this was going to be a long haul. And I called Sal, and I introduced him to my godfather. And I told him, I, I, as a matter of fact, we went to Houston to the livestock show. And that's where we took the sheriff. I said, this is the sheriff that's going to protect the airstrip. Uh, this is going to give you the cocaine. This is who you're going to sell it to. This other bank. I gave him the whole. Literally, like Billy Corbett said, the keys to the kingdom. And he's like, you know, we'll give you half of the profits. And I'm like, no. Because I knew in the back of my mind. See, part of my success, I've always put myself in somebody else's position. How would that person react? How would I react in that situation? And how would that person react? And I'm like, you know, yeah, they're going to give me half of the profit, the first, second, third, fourth load. And then they're going to say to themselves, shit. George is in prison having a blast. We're here risking our ass. Why should we give him anything? Then they start thinking things worse. So <clears throat> I said, look, don't give me half. This is all I want you to do. Here, at that time, it was already 18000 I said, here's $180,000 for 10 kilos. All I ask is that you bring it in, you sell it, and save me the profit. Sell it to my own clients. And save me the profit when I get out of prison. And when I get out of prison, I'll uh, collect it. Oh, my God, we'll give you more than that. I said, no, it's just that. 
Well, when I got a person I wanted to collect, and they looked at me, and Sal says, no, we quit, man. We, we didn't do it. We didn't have, I don't have no money for you. Well, you know, it doesn't come out in the trial because in the trial it says that I testified. The thing was that I testified for both sides. Why I testified for the government? I had no choice. Why? Because I didn't get out of prison because I was going to testify on Sam Willie like the rest of them. I made a deal with the government when I got arrested five years before that I forfeit every penny that I had in exchange for a parole violation 10 years. Nothing to do with Sam Willie. But when you plead guilty and you work out a deal with the government for a certain time, you got to proffer everything you've done. But for me, it was easy because statute of limitation ran out on everybody. I couldn't hurt no one. Otherwise, I would have died in prison like I did in Panama. So, but what they ended up doing <clears throat> is they called me to be their witness too. How? Because their defense was, as George, when he got out, if we were in the business, we owed him a lot of money. But we didn't pay him because we were in the business. So it was actually the best $20 million anyone ever fucked me out of. Well, because I was able to look at him in the eye in the courtroom, right? And I looked at him and I said, I have, when the governor said, do you believe they left? They walked out. And I said, I have to believe they quit. See, their defense is, yeah, we were drug dealers, but we quit. You're getting us now past the statute of limitations. So there's nothing you can do to us. And I said, I had to believe. And I looked at him and I said, because had they not quit, it would have been the biggest betrayal in the world, and they would have been the biggest son of a bitches that ever walked the earth. And I looked at him right there in their eyes. And uh, so, there's nothing I could do for the government except that I got them started. Well, everybody in the world knew that, but that was in 1979. Statue of limitation had run out by 20 years already. So, but, uh, but you know, and I guess that's the reason why I went back, almost like I had something to prove that you screw me, but I can be bigger than you again. And I did with it, no time at all. But then the world had changed. See, that now it's 1985. Now I got to go around with bodyguards with machine guns. Now Pablo is on board. Gotcha. Now Pablo kills one of my close friends in Colombia who was 10 times as big as Pablo Escobar. See, Pablo Escobar was by no means the wealthiest or the most powerful. Write that down. The most powerful people in Colombia, no one's ever mentioned their name. Because they were business people. Pablo was the most ruthless. Which is what I call from the first generation. Is the, the, exactly. The first generation of and we can even And we can even go back. Because there's another generation people have been talking about prior to me. Which was the marijuana generation of the Cuban from the Bay of Pigs. And think about it. Who was doing marijuana? This were all hippie, man. This were all fishermen. These people didn't think about no violence, you know? And those people, you take a Beryl Cruz, he was the first godfather of Miami. No one ever remembers his name, but he was a businessman. He made the mistake of what? Building a big old nightclub right there, Coral Gables. So, but no one talks about that generation because that was the pot generation, and pot isn't as exciting as what cocaine became, right? Well, it didn't make as much money either, you know. Uh... And they needed tons of people. See, I could do five times the profit that a 40,000-pound uh, load with three people, and they needed 20. Well, wow. You know? So let's talk about meeting 
the, the third generation, which is the one that brings, you know, destruction basically to, to society and, and, you know, all the killings and, and all of those things. You know, how was it meeting like guys like Pablo, Gacha, you know, you ever met Carlos Leder? No. 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 Uh, Pablo told on him. That's a, that's a fact. You know, the thing about it is at this time, you know, to me it was just pure business. And one thing that I'm going to talk about, one of the principles that is very, very an integral part of my success and it's something that is so hard to do, but that I applied in the drug business and I applied in my company. And I applied in everything I've ever done. And I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's the win-win. Do something where everybody wins. Why is that so hard? Because we have an innate nature to screw people, man. It's really sad. We want to get a one-up on everybody. And in that business, it became to a point where, for example, there was a guy, and he was much wealthier than Pablo. Much, much wealthier. And a gentleman. And uh, at a New Year's party, he makes a comment that, hey, Pablo's got all the fame, but I got all the money. And Pablo killed him. Wow. Killed him and killed his children and his brother. And uh, when I started to see that, and when I started to see what was going on in Miami with the river cops, when I started to see that Willie's mom got kidnapped, then uh, to me it was like, I got to leave. I'm, a, I'm making a million dollar legitimate in my business already. I don't need this. So, and then I started to see that my morals were just, you know, it was just a, a whole different world. Why, why do you think it changed for everybody? Was it the money? Was it the greed? The greed. The... Greed. And then you started getting, you got the Mariels that came into Miami. That created a whole different, uh, Miami became very, very different. And then, and then you had the Pablo. And you had the Gacha. Even though Gacha, let me go back. Pablo was just a scumbag. He cheated so many people. He robbed so many people. He turned into the DEA well, so he, many competitors. He was a thug. Really bad. With me, he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman with me. But well, gotcha. He, he probably knew who to pick his fights with. And well, because of my win-win. So what's one, one of the things that I did, briefly, so I don't spoil it. I told my godfather, we're bringing in 800 kilos. It's not like the old days where that 800 kilo was 95% of everybody's cocaine. Us four, right? Us five. He said, now you got Gacha. Now you got Ochoas. Now you got Pablo and three other guys. I said, you got all these guys. If we start to be successful, as I know we are, what's the first thing that's going to happen? That's going to kick in? Jealousy. Hey, look at that son of a bitch. Look at him. He's bringing all those loads and cutting us out. He's taking our market. But what if I say, okay, to my godfather, we bring in 800 kilos. Let's say 500, I mean, uh, 400 are ours, and we take the other 400, and I divide it between Gacha, Pablo, and another guy. Right? So I say, hey, guys, all you got to pay is the freight, and I'll deliver it to you people here in Miami, and uh, everyone knows that we make $2,000, $3,000 per kilo on it. Then what's, what happens? How do you turn the dynamics? Now they're happy for my success. <laughs> That's correct. Because now they're celebrating that George succeeded. Versus, how do we kill this son of a bitch? 
Right. He's taking our market. He's inventing things because the consumption was so enormous, there could have been 100 people. And then, you know, he goes to war with the government, and it just became a whole tragic thing. And then my, my mother, my parents knew now that I was a drug dealer. And my, when I came out of prison, my mom, I told people my mom was the best tough love in the world. And this is what parents need to learn, how to be tough with their kids. My mother never stopped telling me, son, what you're doing doesn't please God. And not taking a dollar from me, ever, or my father. They lived in the same house they bought from Cuba on minimum wage. Three and a half years after being in the United States, you know, uh, and lived and died in that house. And I used to be angry because I used to tell my dad, this is stupid. I got whores living in million dollar houses. And here you guys living in this $20,000 house. It's our house. You're our son, but your lifestyle and your choices is not going to change our lives. What you're doing doesn't please God. And if you go back to jail, you're going to kill us. My mother would be that tough, and then immediately, Rick, she was like, okay, son, what do you want to eat tonight? And I, I went home every day that I was in Miami. I called my parents every day, even if I was in the jungles of Colombia, because that's, you know, how I was brought up, the love and the respect that I had for them. So it was always in the back of my mind, that part. Now, I didn't think it was God. You know, screw God. What God? There ain't no God. You know, one time I had a confrontation with my mom. I said, Mom, you want to know whose God is? I'm God. So anyway, long story. I had a friend. So at this time, I already bought the best quarter horse stallion, like I showed you yesterday in the world. And I had a friend that would bring 10 mares. And he used to be the old pot smuggler day. Lazaro was his name. Good friend of mine. And I used to always ask him, hey, Lazaro, how did you quit? Because he had quit. Moved from Miami to Ocala. And he's like, man, George is like being pregnant. You know, you're either pregnant or you're not. And that's what he would say all the time. Like, I said, I don't know if it's like that, but, you know, we were laughing, you know, and, and, and we'd have lunch and really good friends. And that kept in the back of my mind. And then there was a couple incidents that I'd rather talk about it in the, uh, uh, at the event. But getting to a point one day where I said, that's it. I'm done. My life has got to change right now. And I didn't know, Rick, what that meant. And that's what I tell people. A lot of times we don't change because we don't know what does that mean. Do we dial? We do this? We call? We, we turn? But we know we got to change. Everybody that's doing something that is not satisfying them and destroying it knows they got to change that. So for me, not knowing how to change, all I know is that if I'm going north, I'm going to go south. If I'm going east, I'm going to go west. And the number one principle of change, move from your environment. You can't stay in the environment that made you who you are. And I moved to my ranch. Didn't go back to Miami two days, twice in four years. Wow. And uh, moved to Miami and just dedicated my whole life. Uh, made all my money legitimate. And I was still living the same lifestyle, legal. I was making a million dollars a year breeding the horses and selling horses. And then I was uh, growing orange groves. And I was living a hell of a life until... Jeff Session decided that, oh, that's not going to happen here. So when, when was it that you found God? When I walked away from the cartel, I thought I had a month to live. Because 
I tell people, we really didn't have a very good retirement program, you know? <laughs> there was no IRA or pension. Right. Because uh, the cartel could put up with anything except one thing, the unknown. Right. They didn't care that, that Rick writes a letter. Hey, uh, I deal with Pablo this. Their, their theory is that dead can talk. And right. a lot of that stuff is, can I get in front of a jury and point to 12 people? We don't give a damn. The government knows who we are anyway. But what nobody could wipe out was the entire financial web I had created. And I thought that was my card. So, but, you know, I'm moving, to, I'm moving into my ranch. It was like a fortress, right? And I'm like, I just can go around, happy-go-lucky, for a while to see what happens. And I hired a guy to teach me karate. And uh, the funny thing is... Why, why karate? What, I had what? done karate for okay. years. And, uh, you know, I've always exercised all my life. And here's the funny thing. The guy that I called was not the guy that ended up showing up on my ranch. I ended up... I'm looking at this guy, which was the style I was used to, Ishinryu, and yet I hired this guy who was Shotokan. How it happened, I, say, I, I want to say it's God, but he shows up the first day. I built a big karate studio. I had a baseball field that I hired the people that did the one for the Yankees in Orlando. Uh, you know, I had a full-size basketball court. I mean, it, it was, you know, Olympic pool. It was, it was a palace. Anyway, I hired him. And he comes, and I built a dojo, you know, a big karate studio. And uh, he says, I'm going to teach you about the sword. I'm putting on my uniform. He's putting on, so we're back to back. And uh, I'm like, damn, man, I'm freaking smart. I love weapons. I picked the right guy. We ain't going to start with no bullshit about throwing punches or kicks. We're going to get right there to the weapons. Now I got the right man. And he turns around, he pulls out a Bible. Man, he pulled out a Bible, and I was so pissed. I was irate. Let me go back. In prison, if I saw you with a Bible, I'd take it from you and throw it in the garbage. Wow. And, and, and people, I, I used to, I mean, I used to laugh at Christians. Because I'm like, where do you think I'm going to go? Hell? Hell yeah. Well, where else I want to go? That's where all my friends are. And definitely don't want to go to your heaven. Is heaven good? Oh, yeah, heaven is, is paradise. I said, no, it's not. I said, you want to die right now? No, no, no. And they, you can see the fear on them. I said, well, shit, heaven can be that good. Because you're scared to death to go to heaven. <laughs> and I don't give a shit about going to hell. So I looked at those people. And I used to say, you know, the Baptist thinks that the Pentecostals are crazy because Jesus don't dance. The, Pente the, uh, the Pentecostals think that the Baptist is crazy because they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that they have in common is that, shit, you can set your clock. You can set your clock by the time they walk out of that church. The rest of the time, the rest of the week, they're no different than me. They laugh at my stupid jokes. They participate in all the bad things I do. And uh, so I hate it. I, I despise Christians. And uh, when this guy puts out a Bible, I'm like, hey, I'm paying a lot of money to teach me karate. I don't believe in the book. I don't believe who the book talks about. So you take that sword home and bring the real sword tomorrow. Man, he got this close from me. Seven degree black belt. And like, young man, what I got to give you, you got no money to pay. Then I realized, shit, man, I don't have a gun. This guy's seven degree black belt. He's going to start introducing Jesus on me and I'm going to be paying for it. I'm like, don't get excited, dude. I'll make a deal with you. After the two hours of the karate lesson, while the steam room is heating up, 
You waste your time. Tell me what you want about that book. And he did for three and a half years. Before, I haven't changed anything. I remember when my book came out, we threw a big party in South Beach. The publisher, Random House, did. And his wife said, let me tell you something I never told anyone. She said, uh, you know, it's been about three years. Tim would get up at four something in the morning. He'd have to drive, drive an hour to your ranks to be there at seven o'clock. And uh, one day he couldn't sleep. And I'm like, what's wrong, Tim? And he's like, I can't go back there anymore. She's like, I didn't know what to say. All I can say is, to, Tim, listen to the Holy Spirit. And she's like, I am. He's telling me to get the hell out. He's hysterical. I've been going there for three and a half years, and this guy goes from bad to worse. If the Antichrist is coming, it's that Cuban in that ranch over there. I'm going there, and I'm going to tell him I'm done. And she just kept saying, Tim, listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And he's like, I hear him clearly. He told me, get out now. He drives up to my ranch, goes to the gate, goes to security, and his car stopped. And he said it was the first time in his entire life. Now, this guy had been in Japan. His father was a missionary. He was ran over by a train and a miracle that he lived. And his wife made a promise when, when she saw him at the hospital, his brain mass was outside of his head. And she said, God, heal him, and he'll spend the rest of his life telling people about you. Anyway, he got healed, became a seven-degree black belt, and uh, he said he heard the voice of God say, Tim, why are you giving up on George? I have not. And three months later, I ended up giving my life to God. And I tell people, you know, when I gave my life to God, Rick, I didn't believe God was real. I didn't believe that God was real for maybe two years after that. I gave my life to God not because of anything he said. I would probably would have vouched that I did not remember nothing that he said. I was getting over the two hours of butt whooping he was giving me every day to even think about what the hell he was reading. But it was what I saw. See, I saw this guy that lived in this little, little bitty world. He lived in a thousand square foot home. And he told me how madly happy he was. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. My house is 15, 20,000 square feet. My guest house is 5,000. I'm miserable. You got a shitty ass car. You got a million dollars worth of cars. And then the killer was when he told me he was madly in love with a 40-year-old woman. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Look at all the supermodels. I hate every one of them bitches, man. And you love her? <laughs> you got to be on drugs. But it was, see, and this is what my mission today. I don't care if people are Muslim. I don't care what people are. You know, it is one God. And I know Christians might go crazy and nuts. You know, we'll have one thing. But here's the thing. I just think heaven's going to be a lot bigger than, than, than what people go around preaching. But... It was nothing that he said that, that made me change. It was everything that I saw. See, that man never told me, you got to go to church. And when he saw me do horrible things, which he did, man, I would have naked women there. To just, I just, wanted him to leave. Just to piss him off. I wanted him to leave. I could not stand that he would not fight. And uh, he would never say nothing. He just allowed me to see the joy that he had. And all he would say to me is, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? I, I've been surrounded by thousands of people. The minute I got arrested, they all freaking ran. I got no relationship with anybody except my father, mother, and brother. That's it. And you're talking about someone that you've never seen? 
You don't know if it's real or not. It could be pigment of somebody's imagination. You talk about a guy that there's been more murders in his name in history than in any other war. You're nuts. But it was July 1st, 1990, about 11.30 in the morning. Remember, just like I'm talking to you right now, my divorce was final. And you'll hear the big catalyst when we changed it was my daughter. And I see her mother dragging her out. She's, she was born in 86, so we're talking about four years old. And she's looking back, crying, about to be turned five. And she's like, Daddy, Daddy. And it was a moment when I went into my room and I'm like, God, first and foremost, I want to be honest. I don't believe you exist. One. Two, for some weird reason you do, you look at him and say, George, you're so freaking bad, stay down there. But if you are the reason that that man has the joy and happiness he has, and he has nothing to buy with, and I got all the money in the world to buy everything, I want that to kill me. And, uh, you know, some Christian will tell you that the Bible says when a sinner converts, there's bells in heaven. Well, it must not be for Cubans, but I didn't hear shit. <laughs> all I know is that three months later, my world went from dark to super dark. I was at a horse show. I get arrested in Springfield, and I have no idea. I've been retired for four years. I haven't done nothing. There was no investigation when I walked away. There was no snitch, no one. I've been arrested, nothing. And uh, I had no clue. And I get taken to Mobile, Alabama, and I've been there in my life. And uh, when I got there, my attorney met me, and, and he told me, he says, you're going to walk. He says, they got one witness against you, making up a story, and, and I'll tell the story later on, but he said, but he died last night. While he was a government witness, he was also using a DEA airplane to smuggle home oh. and crashed in the fog and killed himself. Wow. But you know what? I was at a point in my life that I just couldn't fight anymore. I just could not fight anymore. And I felt... He's like, look, you're going to go in there and say you're innocent, and uh, I'll have you out of here no time at all. And I remember looking at him, and uh, this is the same attorney that brought me a plea of two years, and I told him, if you ever offer me another plea from government, I'm going to kill you. I looked at him, and I said, Alan, let me tell you about this. There's a problem with me going there and say I'm innocent. See, I'm guilty. I might be innocent of what you're charging me, but I'm guilty. And here's the thing, man. I... Here you are a good Jew that I love. I know since you were out of law school for three years. You tell me I'm going to go home. And I've given my life to another Jew, and he ain't saying shit. But I'm going to tell you something. If that other Jew don't change my life, I don't care where I die, man. I've been dead for years. And I can't fight these people anymore. I'm tired. And I just knew that I couldn't continue that. I couldn't continue with... Number one, when you retire, all you've done comes to your mind. You know, because here's the thing. In public, I'll let you people know what a great guy George Valdez was, but, you know, we all lay down and look at the ceiling. And then worse yet, we wake up in the morning and we look at the mirror. And then we ask ourselves, do we like what we see? And I didn't like what I saw. It wasn't who I was. It wasn't who I was brought up to be. It wasn't the kid that my parents sacrificed everything to have an opportunity in an amazing country. And uh, 
I said, what do they want? He says, they want it all. Statue of limitation ran out, so they couldn't take any of my assets. But since I've been retired for four years, I made it all legal. And they knew exactly everything I had. So long story, I walked into the U.S. Attorney's office, and they're like, little money, lots of time, lots of money, little time. And uh, I said, you know how much I got? And they're, no, but we know who do. They opened the door, and four agents came out, DEA, FBI, IRS, and Customs. And they have been following me for years. They knew to the penny. They knew how much toilet paper we bought. And uh, we won it all. And, you know, people say, was it hard? You know, in my mind, close to $60 million, if not more. It really wasn't hard giving that up. And when it really dawned on me, because what we asked as part of our plea is, look, you haven't busted him with nothing. He's not coming in here and saying, I'll fight you. When he sees that he's defeated, he's going to surrender. He's coming in telling you, you got a bad case, but he's going to plead guilty, blind. He's going to give you every penny he made, number two. And number three, with no promise. But all we ask is that you proffer to the judge to sentence him to a parole violation. See, I, I, out of the 15 years, I served five, which is the most you can serve uh, the first time. And then, so I was on the parole for 10 years. And all, I, all that stuff I did, I did on the parole. So basically what I'm telling them is, yeah, I'm guilty. I dealt drugs. So violate my parole, which is 10 years, which is what I ended up getting. I didn't get cut and all that because the government went to say, hey, George is the good guy, cooperate. I, 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 I don't say luck because I believe in God, but it was a blessing that I got arrested in Mobile, Alabama because $60 million forfeiture in Mobile, Alabama is enormous. In L.A. or Miami, it would have been nothing. You know, I mean, it would have been substantial, but not. Not, not, big. not enough to make Jeff Sessions U.S. attorney, you know. So anyway, and I mean, with me, he was great. They were straightforward. They were not. You know, none of them were mean or he was simply businessman. You know, hey, we got you. So you want to take a chance? Keeping that money? We'll, we'll, send you to, we'll send you to jail for the rest of your life. And I'm like, I don't care about the money. I don't care about nothing. And I'll go there and plead, you know, naked. That Leave it up to the judge. And... Uh, when it really dawned on me was when I went back to the jail. You know, an hour later, I'm in my cell, and I hear this, this other man screaming, Milky Way, Milky Way, Milky Way. And I'm like, what the hell is all that fuss about? I ask another man. He's like, oh, man, you better buy some now. I said, what? He said, man, the food here is really crappy. And Milky Way is, you get to supplement your food with a Milky Way. Wow. And they're only a dollar. And then Rick. It hit me like a build, like the Twin Towers fell on me. Holy shit. An hour ago, it was worth $60 million. I don't have a doubt to buy Milky Way. You know? But it's when my life began to take meaning. Because no longer I had money and power to fall back on. And I tell people, listen, I began to read the Bible, number one, because it was the only book that was readily available. But I began to read it just as a uh, historical book. Wonderful war stories, if you like war. And then after a while, I began to read it as a book of morality. Because forget about religion. Forget about any of that. Just take the teachings. You know, 
And a moral person doesn't do what? Doesn't kill, steal, sell drugs, cheat, bang his neighbor's wife. Right. And my life began to change, and I'm like, I had a choice to make. And this is why I teach. We all, every day of our life, we have a choice to make. So my choice was, listen to the inmates when they say, George, you guys sleep 12 hours a day. Because 12 hours, you will sleep half of your sentence away. But see, my mindset wasn't that I was going to sleep half of my sentence away. My mindset was that if I did that, I was going to waste half of my life. Number one. Number two, my mindset told me that I'm not defined by that past. And it is within me, number one, they lock my body up, but they can't lock my brain up. Number three, I have a choice to make. So do I choose to be angry? To... to Go through all these different emotions or to say, hey, George, if you're ever going to get out of here, what can you do while you're here to become a better person? And then when my mindset told me that, what happens? Then I'm, man, these people give me a blessing. I got free housing. I got free clothing. I got free food. I ain't got nobody waiting on me to do nothing for the client. I ain't got shit. And I began to study, study. I got another bachelor's and started my master's. I got released eventually after five years and finished my master's, then went and got a PhD. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to be, a college professor. I wanted no one to know who I was. I, like I told people, the big snitch, Google had not come around. Yeah, you, had, you wanted to erase your past or hide it. Um, but in reality, I believe today, because you are a man that has been redeemed or, you know, went through redemption, I guess. Um, your past doesn't define who you, who you are today, but it allows you to become the man you are today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And why do I choose to tell my story now, not 20 years ago? Or I've been married to my wife now 24, so, and we're together for 26 years ago. When I didn't have no money to eat and people were willing to pay me 500000 to speak at a church. Why? Well, you know, I had a mentor that said the wisest thing in the world to me. He's like, I don't want you to tell your story until you have another story to tell. What story are you going to tell? A drug dealer that changed his mind and now is a good person? Or what about if you wait till you have a complete story to tell? Correct. And see, and that's the story I got to tell now. Because I can tell people, the day I got out of prison, I can tell, you know, you can change your life, you can do this and that. But it's half a story, right? The story is complete now. I earned the highest uh, academic degree a human being can get. Well, as a matter of fact, I was only five. I was one of five Hispanics in the entire nation with it. I was named a Hispanic doctoral student by the Pew Foundation two years in a row. Wow. And then when I realized I want to be a full-time to my kids that were living in Georgia where there was no university where they lived to teach, I started a company from scratch and built it into a multi-million dollar company. The story is complete. And then, in the heights of our company, I quit because I realized that if I couldn't tell when enough was enough, greed was going to continue to drive my life. And if greed drove me, I'd never be happy. Which was the company that you did restorations right. in, uh, for, for the states, right? Yeah, for the states. We did restoration for Panasonic, Walmart. We did, uh, were involved in the cleanup of the Pentagon after the 911 attack. And, uh, and I built it, you know, from scratch, cleaning toilets, taking shit out of people's carpet. Wow. 
How, know, how long do you, do you operate and run a company for? 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. And it was hard. It was hard because uh, we couldn't get no, for a long time, we couldn't get no contracts because, insurance contract, because I was a convicted felon. Right. Right? And the insurance company could not let a convicted felon go into a client's, you know, customer's house. But I didn't let none of that hold me back. And I never felt sorry for myself. And that's something that's really important for people to know. Listen, if you screw up, man up. Don't let that screw up define the rest of your life, but don't use that screw up also to pity patty. Or to hold you back. Or to hold you back or to think that, oh, I can't do nothing now because, I, I, you know, no one wants to hire a felon. Yeah, nobody, listen, nobody wants to hire a felon. How about a twice convicted drug lord? How about classified by the government as the head of a crime family? You know, all those are lies. You bust your ass. You have faith. You sacrifice. And like I tell my kids, do what others want so you get to do what others cannot. That's simple. It ain't that complicated. I never invented anything in my life. All I've done is use the same principles. To build a drug empire at the age of 21 and to build a multi-million dollar company out of jail. Just, out, just fresh out of here. So how long did it take you from the time you got out of jail, you went and finished your, your master's and PhD? I finished my, it took me six months to finish my master's because I did a lot of it in prison. Right. Five years to do a PhD. The other student that started with me took nine years. Uh, I was motivated by the fact that I was Hispanic from the Caribbean and Chicago was a bit too freaking cold for me. Right. And I was dying to get the hell out. And then uh, from there, I started the minute, literally, uh, Right after I graduated in, uh, I think I finished my degree in 1999. I got the diploma in my office. 99, and uh, I started our company in, shortly thereafter. I moved to Georgia. Uh, my dad had passed away, and I was like, how are my kids growing? Yeah, I'm missing him tremendously. He never gave me nothing, but he gave me his presence. Right. And uh, how are my kids going to remember me? Someone that sent a check every month. They had a good summer. You know, and, uh, you know, I tell my kids, before 40, take risk. After 40, don't have any regrets. Don't live with what if. You know, what if I had moved? Look at all my kids. Everyone wants to know, how are you kids so successful? They all have graduate degrees. They're all extremely successful. When, let's see, my oldest son, by the time he was 13, I've been in jail for 10 years. My other three children from my other wife, by the time that they were seven, six, and five, I have been in jail for five years. Wow. And two divorce homes. See? You know, like the story I tell about the twins, right? There's these twins. They have a father. He's an alcoholic, drug addict, beats the wife. And one day, one of the twins becomes a drug addict, alcoholic, and a white beater. The other twin becomes CEO of a, a big Fortune 500 company. They interviewed him. And they asked the first twin, who was an alcoholic, he says, what happened to your life? He said, I saw my father. They asked the other twin, real successor, said, what happened to your life? And he said, I saw my father. See, they both saw the same person, but it was through the lens that they saw him and the mindset that they had to like, oh, I'm just gonna be like him. But the other one is like, hey, I love my father, but I'm going to be the total opposite. Whatever he did, I'm going to do opposite. So 
circumstances in life do not define our path. You know it well. Yes. You lost it all. You know what that feels like. What it feels like to know you, 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 you worth 20, 30 million dollars, you got all this money, and then the next day he's like, shit, man, I can't even take my family to eat today. That's right. I know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to pay. How am going to pay that electric bill? Yeah. <laughs> or tell my wife, hey, you see that credit card? I'll wait till that, the, the bill's due today, so before we pay, call him and tell him that we don't know that charge. No, I actually had a, a true story. I had the gas turned off in my house one time, but this is what the gas company will do. They'll go take the meter out, that way, you know, they take a piece of the meter out, right. that way they, the gas can flow through. But then they go put a sticker, which is like, it's like, like the color of that bag that is like orange. Anybody can see that sticker from 10 miles away. And I open the door and I'm looking at, what is this thing? And I'm pulling the sticker off. They say, oh, your gas have been turned off. But that's kind of like to give you shame with your neighbors, right? I didn't freaking care, you know. I was like, who cares? Okay, you know, I went and figured out, bought, borrow 100 bucks and put my gas back on. But yeah, I mean, that's after being rich. And, right. and But I, 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 in a way, I have a lot of the mindset that, that you apply because even though I was, I had a cash flow problem, but I wasn't poor. No, I was rich exactly. in my mind. I just didn't have cash at the time to, to, to pay for things and be back on track and all that. And then I did a lot of sacrifices. I sold my house, you know, um, got rid of all my expensive vehicles. I got, <laughs> sold my watches, just like you. I love watches. And I just start all the Rolexes. They start selling out. You know, I started, like, I remember a Rolex. I used to have a Rolex Batman. It's a GMT2. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Oh, well. And... and and uh, that watch I actually bought and sold twice. But the second time around, I was doing a triple deal with a real estate transaction where Tony, who's one of my great friends, which you probably meet at the mastermind, he was, I was dealing him a property that I had bought with the first Batman that I sold. So I needed $10,000 to close that day. I didn't have money and I went and Sold the watch, got the ten grand, closed on the property, kept the property, but now the property had like sixty thousand dollars worth of equity, and he gave some cash flow every month. So I had to give another lender a property that I had that Tony was buying. So I sold it to Tony so I can pay off this lender. But Tony was like, "Dude, you're deficient on this loan. How are we gonna do this?" And I said, "Well, Tony, I got this other property that's worth sixty thousand dollars that's got equity." that I'm going to, I can just give it to you. I'll give you the, the, the deed. That way you're not coming on, on the bottom, you're coming on top. You get two properties plus $60,000 worth of equity. And long story short, I gave him almost $120,000 worth of equity on two different properties, but I did it with a watch that I paid $10,000 for. And I got rid of the problems. He got great, a great deal on those two deals on the properties. He still has both of them, I think. Uh, he just told me, he said, hey, I'm about to lease one of the properties. This is, he bought it like two years ago. He's like, I'm going to make like $110,000 on the deal. So great deal. Yeah, exactly. But it was from a watch that at the time I had to give up, you know, because I needed cash. I, was, I had a, a big cash flow problem. So um, guys, this is, this is awesome. For those of you guys that are watching this on YouTube uh, or listening to it on, on, on iTunes, Dr. Valdez is going to be at our mastermind uh, in Miami, Florida, October 23rd. Okay, he's going to speak on the 23rd, but the mastermind is October 21st through the 24th. 
And he's going to be speaking a lot on his redemption. What the narco mindset is all about. He has books out. Um, by the way, we are paying Dr. Valdez to do this, but he's donating every penny to the books that you are donating to the federal, uh, you know, the to the prisons. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, so when we started a company, we decided we we're going to give 10% off the top to God. And people say, oh my God, the revenue, that's too much. Well, we did a lot with the 90%. But so we did a lot of different things. We built churches, we have youth programs, we did a lot. Eventually, ended up doing my, my passion. I have a heart for men, women, and children in prison. They've been abandoned by everybody in society. And it's sad because most of the people doing a lot of time were nobodies. And uh, God put it in my heart to take my book. I re-edited it. I made a shorter copy of it. I took out all the things that would excite prisoners. Right. I, I made it prison friendly, let's put it that way. Okay. And then I started, I, I teamed up with a gentleman that one day who had been nobody, a gym teacher in a little bitty town of 2,000 people that felt that God called him to distribute my book. And he asked me, like, hey, you got books to send? I said, look, if, can you send them? I said, look, if you can figure out how to send them, I'll give them to you. Well, I sent you the list yesterday. We're in every prison in America. 60, we have sent uh, 60,000 books at the end of uh, August, and I think we sent like 12,000 this month. Every book is read by 10 men and, or women or children, and it transforms their life because what it does is it gives them hope. It shows them what we've been talking about. You're not defined by your past. If God changed George Valdez, he can change anybody. You can have faith. You can have redemption. You can ho have hope. You can reinvent yourself. And, and for a moment, you're sitting in a jail abandoned by the world, and you read this story. And I think that a lot of people change when they hear that somebody has changed, right? And, uh, and they do that. And so that has become my passion. And the day I left prison, even all the, the thousands of dollars in speaker's fees that I generate, I do not, I have never, nor will I ever keep a dollar of anything related to my story. Not the movie rights, not the royalties that I got for the book, uh, speaker's fee. Every penny goes to buy and send books to prison. Uh, it costs us a lot. We don't solicit funds. We don't take donations. Uh, we believe that God, you know, provides the funds. And my wife and I do it. And sometimes we do it out of our limited income. I mean, we live a hell of a life. Don't get me wrong, you know. And, uh, but if it means that I got to do without going out to eat this month because we're going to send books, that's what we're going to do. And we do. And we have sent, like I said, we sent over 60,000 to do the math. That's wow. Almost 200 grand. Wow. That's a lot of books. So and, that's uh, uh, that's well, our mission. We're happy that we're going to be able to contribute to that now and add a bunch of more books yep. uh, to your cause. And Guys, you guys need to come to the Real Estate Entrepreneurs Event in Mastermind Miami, Florida. Shake his hand. Take a picture with him. Watch his speech. He's going to be there for a couple of hours. We're going to do some Q&A. Uh, he's got so many stories, man. I mean, you are a wealth of stories, you know, related not only to what happened back in the 70s and the 80s, but what's happening now. Um, you know, and, and, and I want people to get to know the new George. Uh, which is what we're going to be speaking about in, in the mastermind itself. So, George, thank you so much, man. Rick, I appreciate it. My pleasure, it. man. Thanks. It's been an honor being here with you in your house, by the way. He, uh, he uh, um, you know, we're doing this in, in, in Mr. George's house, and I'm here with his family. Uh, you, I brought him some uh, 
some Venezuelan food so they can try later on. And guys, I will see you at the Real Estate Entrepreneurs Event and Mastermind October 21st through the 24th. You definitely don't want to miss this out. Mr. Valdez will be there hanging out and, 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 and being as generous as he is. He's been with me uh, for a couple of days now and he opened the door to his house. I'm very blessed to be here today and, and get to share the story that he's had, but also to contribute to his cause, uh, which is one of the things that I get most excited about is that I know that you know we're helping a lot of people out with these books that, you, that you're sending out. And he also has a community that he will be talking about uh, much further in in the mastermind. We might put some, some links below. And don't forget to hit share, like, and subscribe, and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much.